Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I wonder how many of you have asked the question lately of what is the meaning of life? <laughs> how many of you have wrestled with that anytime lately? What is the meaning of life? I, I'm guessing probably many of you probably haven't thought of it very much, and, and there's maybe a number of reasons for that. One of the reasons is that it seems like such an untouchable question. It just seems like something that's beyond our reach. It's almost a cliche. It's almost something to, to kind of laugh at for anybody to even begin to think that he or she can discover the meaning of life. And jokes are made of it. There's a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and the question is, what is the meaning of life? The answer given, 42. Apparently, you guys don't like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's supposed to be a joke. 42 couldn't possibly be the meaning of life. If you have an iPhone, you know, you can ask Siri the meaning of life, and she has a number of different answers for that. Um, a movie, she says. Uh, I don't know. I think there's an app for that and a number of other various responses. Just responding in humor, kind of the idea is who can possibly know? Another reason we might not really think much about this question of the meaning of life is that we are actually preoccupied with so many other things. We're just distracted. We, we live in this digital age where we can look at a video and check our email and look at our text at any given moment 24-7, and it's so easy today to distract ourselves from reflecting on any of the big significant questions. And that could be a problem. Neil Postman's a guy who wrote a book years ago called Amusing Ourselves to Death. We have so much entertainment at our disposal that it's easier perhaps now than in any other time in history to distract ourselves away from what are the very big questions in life. But let me just kind of push you a little bit and ask you to reflect on these things. Don't you ever wonder about it? What is the meaning of life? Why are you here? Why do you exist? I mean, think about it. Tomorrow, you're all going to wake up, probably going to have something to eat. You're going to go to work or raise your kids or go to school. Then you'll eat something else. And then you'll go back and you'll work a little bit. And then you'll eat something. And then you'll watch TV and you'll go to bed. And then you'll wake up and you'll do that all over again. And you'll wake up the next day and you'll do it again. And depending on how old you are, you're going to do that for years and decades. And then you're going to retire. And then you're going to die. That's your life. Have you ever asked, well, what, what is the meaning of that? Is there any purpose? Is there any intention in that? What's the point? Why do I exist? Is there meaning to life? That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And that's what we're going to be thinking about, actually, in various installments over the next several weeks as we begin this new series called How to Make Sense of Life. Um, here is a card that's been available for the last few weeks, and there's a list of the topics that we'll be covering and the dates that we'll be talking about them. There's cards available on the Welcome Center, so you can take a look at these if you want to see where we're headed or if you want to invite others to come and listen. But what we're going to be doing is looking to the Bible to help us make sense of some of the basic questions that 
that people ask throughout all of history and in all places of the world. And at some point, this is something that occurs to us all. What is the meaning of life? There's other questions that we ask, like, why do we suffer? What do we do with the fact that there's evil and suffering and pain in this life? How about when we deal with the question of right and wrong? People are so eager to do the right thing, but how do we know that? How do we know that there's really any kind of moral truth in this life? Questions of identity. Who am I as a human being? Am I any different than an animal or a robot? What distinguishes me as a human being? Who am I? Questions about death. What, what, does the, what does death mean? The fact that every one of us is going to die one day. What, how does that impact your life and how you process your daily experience? These are the kinds of topics we're going to be talking about in the coming Sundays. But today we're just kind of beginning with this broad overview question of making sense of life, making sense of the meaning of life. Because here is a really good way to test whether a religion or a worldview, a way of looking at the world is true or false. One of the best ways to test that is to see if it makes sense of reality. To see if it makes sense of the things you keep bumping into in your daily life. These questions that I've just been mentioning to you. And we want to look and see, does the Bible make sense of things for us? It's not going to answer every question. But does it help us navigate our way through the world as it is? And I think you're going to find that the answer is yes. And Ecclesiastes is this wonderful book that is going to begin our journey here. And uh, Ecclesiastes is uh, a very unusual book in the Bible. It's it's kind of a, a cynical book. You might be surprised if you haven't read it before. Uh, It's it's a book that seems to ask the questions that all the skeptics are are asking. Um, It's a book that forces us to ask questions that maybe we wouldn't otherwise want to ask. I actually did a sermon series on this about seven years ago, so it's been a while. And uh, we're going to read the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes to get us started in this series. So let's stand now for the reading of God's Word, Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it flees. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already to the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, 
nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Our Father, we thank you for your word recorded for us and guarded and preserved for us by your Spirit, and we plead with you for the same Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we can understand, Lord, what this passage means and understand why we exist, why we are living, why you have put us on this earth. Show us, Lord. Show us that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so Ecclesiastes, yeah, what, what a, an interesting book. It, it almost sometimes seems when you read it like it was written by an unbeliever. And that's why it's so relevant for our particular day when uh, there are so many questions uh, about the existence of God. And it is this book, maybe more than any other, that kind of touches directly on this question of the meaning of life. So three things I want to show you here from this book. And the first is this, and this is just based on what the writer, I'm just going to refer to the writer of Ecclesiastes. There are some who think Solomon wrote this. There are a lot who question that and challenge that. So it's a little uncertain. I'll say the writer here tells us this, first of all, that life gives the appearance of being meaningless. That's what we see here in these first 11 verses. So before we go any further, I want, I want to share this with you. This is Tim Keller writing on how we might define what the meaning of life is. Um, Keller's written a book called Making Sense of God, which is very helpful in kind of exploring some of these same kinds of questions. Keller says this, to have meaning in life is to have both an overall purpose for living and the assurance that you are making a difference by serving some good beyond yourself. That's what it is to have meaning in life. You feel like there's a purpose for your existence and you are serving something more than just your own personal interest, some kind of higher good that you're devoting yourself to. And what the writer to Ecclesiastes or of Ecclesiastes says here is that when you just look at the world and look at life in general, it appears that neither of these things is the case. It appears that life is totally meaningless. So he divides it up into two sections. First of all, he says this, it's the natural world that seems meaningless. So look what he says here in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. The writer says, you look, you just notice, people, generations of people who rise up, they seek to make a difference in the world, they die off, and then some other generation comes and replaces them. And then on and on it goes. You know, baby boomers who were a symbol of youth and rebellion many years ago are now mostly in their 60s and getting ready to retire. And we have a new generation called the Millennials, many of them in this congregation who are the young, vibrant, active generation of our day. I mean, think of it. There's going to be a day when Millennials are going to be in wheelchairs, going to be living in nursing homes, and there's going to be another generation that's going to come later, and the Millennials are going to look back on that younger generation and, and reflect on how, you know, shocking and progressive the younger generation seems. That generation is going to look at millennials as if they're old-fashioned and traditional. That's what's going to happen. That's the way it's been going. Generation after generation replaces one another, and yet the earth remains forever. So it's like the writer is saying, isn't that strange? The generations of people who are seeking to make a difference die out, but the earth just stays the same and goes nowhere. 
decade after decade, century after century. It seems, it seems meaningless. It doesn't make sense. Verse 5, <clears throat> another example. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. That word hastens means pants with exhaustion. So we have a picture here of, of the sun that just seems to be hurrying to rise and then hurrying to set, and then it comes up the next day and it does it again and again and again. Now, of course, we know that the sun is the center of the universe. I don't think we have anything wrong here. The writer is just describing the way things appear, right? It does appear that the sun is coming up and going around the earth. And so based on that appearance, the writer is just saying it just seems like the sun is going nowhere. He's just going around like a dog chasing his tail, round and round and round. There's no meaning to it. Verse 6, the writer mentions the wind. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. Similar kind of thing. The wind just keeps blowing in all these unpredictable ways. You can look at a weather forecast on TV, and you can see the movement of jet streams now and just kind of watch how they go. Totally unpredictable. Seems completely non-purposeful. I mean, you can see how hard it is to predict the weather. I, I look at that weather app, and it says 100% chance of rain, and then the, the day comes, and it doesn't rain. <laughs> I mean, how can you predict the weather? You can't. It's so unpredictable. It seems to have no intentionality to it. Have you ever chased a piece of paper down the road that was being blown by the wind? It's impossible to do because of the seeming randomness of the way the wind works. Verse 7, referring to water now. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So you look at the way the whole you know, river system works, and all these rivers are interconnected, and they all kind of eventually flow down into the ocean, and all this water goes into the ocean. This water constantly flowing into the ocean day after day, week after week, and yet the ocean never gets full. <laughs> What, 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 what's going on there? It's like pouring water into a bathtub with a faulty plug, and you just keep getting buckets of water and just keep pouring it in the tub, and the water keeps leaking out, and you just do it over and over again. It just seems absurd. The writer's just saying this just seems, it seems meaningless. But it's not just the natural world that he observes. He also makes some observations based on human experience, and he says this seems meaningless also. Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Life at some point, no matter how much you enjoy it, no matter how many blessings you have, it gets weary. You, you want children, you get children, and then it's wearisome raising children. You want a job, your dream job, you get your dream job, and then the dream job becomes wearisome. You want a house and have your own house, you get a house, and it's a weary task to keep up with your house, particularly in the springtime, right? You cut the yard three days later, you got to cut the yard again. The grass keeps growing back. <coughs> Windows keep getting dirty. Things keep falling apart, and it's just wearisome. <clears throat> the things we get don't seem to satisfy us. The eye is never satisfied. We're always looking for something more. There was this famous interview with Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, after his third Super Bowl win, it was 60 Minutes, and the interviewer said, uh, Tom, what's your favorite Super Bowl ring? And he said, the next one. The three that I've won already have already worn off. 
They don't even mean anything to me anymore. I want another one. Because the eye is not satisfied. Verses 9 and 10. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. There's no real innovation. There's nothing really fresh. There's nothing really new. As the world goes on, it's just a repetition of the same things. I've heard it said that all of Western philosophy is basically a footnote to Plato, that no one's really approved upon Plato, who wrote and thought more than two millennia ago. There's nothing new under the sun. I have a book at home. It's called Retromania, Pop Culture's Addiction to Its Own Past. Look at movies and, and, and music. And it's just the regurgitation of the same ideas over and over again. And then verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So there are things in the past that were so common and we don't remember them, but there are things coming in the future that are going to be stark innovations that years after that are also going to be forgotten. I mean, there's people here who probably never have seen a rotary phone or a floppy disk or a typewriter. I mean, those were regular parts of our lives. They were everywhere, in every home, in every office, and now they're nowhere. They're gone. They're forgotten. And the writer says, this just seems absurd. This just seems ridiculous. What are we doing? That's the question that the writer wants us to ask. It seems absurd. There's a writer named Leo Tolstoy, many of you have heard of. He was a very famous writer, had a very successful career at about the age, uh, age of 50. He started kind of asking some questions about the meaning of his life, and he said this, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? One can only live while one is intoxicated with life. As soon as one is sober, it's impossible not to see that it is all a mere fraud. Like when you're young and vibrant and everything's exciting, you're intoxicated with life, maybe you're not reflecting so much, but once you get kind of sober and you begin to think of things a little more carefully and a little more seriously, if you're just looking at the way things appear, you might conclude all of life is a fraud. Now this is depressing, isn't it? (laughs) I told you, Ecclesiastes, it's just kind of an unusual book. it, it seems depressing, but here's what the writer is doing. He's grabbing you by the collar, and he's slapping you in the face, and he's saying, put down your cell phone for a moment and reflect on why you exist. I want you to ask some questions. I want you to reflect on some meaningful things. I want you to consider why you exist and why you're doing what you're doing. This book forces us to do this, forces us to ask these questions that we might otherwise wish would just go away. Well, he goes on and makes this point. This actually comes before the verses that we've read, but I think this is a point here that the writer is is making as well, that life actually is meaningless in the absence of God. It appears meaningless when we just look at things, but when we look at it, as if God doesn't exist, it's a good conclusion to draw that life is meaningless. Let's go back to verses 2 and 3 here. Verses, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, 
all is vanity. If you have an NIV, the, the word vanity there is translated meaningless. All is meaningless. Uh, the word for vanity there, or meaningless, is r- really the word for breath or, or vapor. It's like when in wintertime and you kind of breathe out and you can kind of see your breath for just a second and then it just kind of dissipates like mist and fades away. And the writer's saying that's, that's what life is like. It's like a vapor that's here for a moment and gone. But then in verse 3, the writer makes a very key point here. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Under the sun. Very key phrase. Under the sun. It appears 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what the writer seems to be saying is, when we look at life under the sun, that is, when we look at life as if God doesn't exist, when we look at life from a purely secular point of view, when we look at life from ground level, under the sun, as if nothing exists above the sun, as if there is no God who has created all things. If that's the way we look at life, it is indeed meaningless. You can't find meaning in life apart from a world that has been created and is sustained by God. Now, there's there's different responses to that. One response is to agree with that. And, And that's the response that some atheists might, might have. The, the atheist might just say this. You're right. The writer of Ecclesiastes is, is right. There is no God, and life is meaningless, so get used to it. I mean, I'm sorry that you don't like that, but it's just the way things are. Sometimes reality is different than the way we prefer it. And so, no God, no meaning, and that's just the way it is. Richard Dawkins is a very famous atheist writer today, and uh, here's the way he says it. The universe we perceive has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's his view of the universe. He's just saying there is no God, therefore... All we have is a universe, the universe is impersonal, the universe doesn't care, doesn't care about you, doesn't care about anything. It's just a big inanimate object, there's no distinction between good and evil, no purpose, no intention, no no meaning. So what do we say to that? How do we respond to a bleak view like that? It's kind of interesting when you hear Richard Dawkins, Dawkins talk, he doesn't seem to be very bleak about it, it's almost like he's glad to say it. I don't know how he he really reconciles that, but here's one, I mean, we could attack this, I think, from a lot of different perspectives, but but here's one main problem with that way of looking at things. And that is, what what Dawkins here is saying is, is a sentence that is packed full of meaning. How, how can you say something meaningful in a meaningless universe? If there is no meaning to the universe, how can you even communicate a coherent sentence that would articulate that? You, you can't. 
How is it that everything is meaningless except this, a few little pockets where Richard Dawkins has the opportunity to say something meaningful? It's a self-refuting statement. He's proving that the universe has meaning by saying something meaningful. It's like C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, if the universe has no meaning, we would never know it. Because to say that the universe has no meaning is, is meaningful. He says it's like, a, it's like if the universe had no light in it and, and everybody in the universe had no eyes, you would never know it was dark. Dark would have no meaning. There would be no way to measure it. And in the same way, there's no way to say that the universe is meaningless in a meaningful way. So... This is a problem, and this is one of the examples that I'm mentioning when we talk about how to make sense of life. A view like this that says there is no meaning to the universe just doesn't ring true with the way we know things are, even if we think about it logically like I just um, attempted to do, but even if we think of it in our just basic daily experience. So, for instance, there was a, a psychologist years ago who decided to do an experiment. He went into a nursing home and he brought in a bunch of animals and pets for the residents of the nursing home to take care of. And a lot of these residents were like nearly comatose. Some of them hadn't spoken in a long time. They were just completely withdrawn upon themselves. But when they were given these pets to take care of, they just, they came alive. Some people who hadn't talked in a long time started speaking. They started getting up and going to the front desk and asking for an animal to take care of. Their medication prescriptions went down. The death rate went down 15% in that nursing home. And the psychologist said, this just shows the fundamental human need for a reason to live. We all want a reason to live. We can't escape it. Richard Dawkins can't escape it. And so it just doesn't match with reality to say that life is meaningless. But here's another response to this idea that the writer to Ecclesiastes is saying, that under the sun there is no meaning. Apart from God, there is no meaning. Another response is to disagree on this basis, to say God is not needed in order for my life to have meaning. There is meaning in the universe, but I don't need to have a God to justify that. Because I can just create my own meaning. I can give my own personal meaning to the task that I do. I can make it up. I, I can just say, this is meaningful to me, and who are you to say that it's not meaningful? And as long as it's meaningful to me, that's all that really matters. So if one person wants to give himself to um, relieving the plight of starving children, and that person finds meaning in that, then good for them. But if I want to devote my life to collecting stamps and find in that activity meaning, then, then good for me. And, and what's the difference? We just pour personal meaning into whatever task we choose to do. Now, now how does that hold up? Well, a couple things we could say to that. I mean, one is this. I think every one of us would say, you know, stamp collecting's fine, but nobody's going to make the case that stamp collecting is as virtuous and valuable of an activity as relieving the plight of starving children. 
to devote your life to feeding the hungry is a more worthwhile task. Everybody knows that. Nobody's going nobody's to make the argument that stamp collecting is, is as helpful to the world as helping the poor. That's because there is a standard of good that exists above these activities by which these things are measured, and that's where we get the true meaning of the universe. But another way to respond to this would, would be to, to say this, to go back to Ecclesiastes and to say, look, no matter how much meaning you happen to pour into whatever activity that you're doing, the fact is this, one day you're going to die and that activity is going to come to an end. And nobody's going to remember it. And you might say, well, no, somebody will remember it. I can leave my stamp collection to my children and to my grandchildren. But you know what? Your children and your grandchildren are also going to die. And their descendants are going to die. And one day the whole universe is just going to shut down. And then what kind of meaning does your life really have? Thomas Nagel, not a Christian as far as I know, philosopher, summed it up like this. Even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool, or the universe will wind down and collapse, and all trace of your effort will vanish. It wouldn't matter if you'd never existed. And after you've gone out of existence, existence, it won't matter that you did exist. <laughs> you might be able to create some kind of momentary, temporary meaning for you, but, but there is no eternal meaning. There is no abiding meaning. There is no sense of serving some good beyond yourself if you're relying on just personal created meaning. So I think the point stands here that the writer is saying, under the sun, apart from God, Life is meaningless. But the third point to consider this morning is this. Life is made meaningful through the gospel. There is the possibility of finding a life of meaning. This is, the answer to this question is not some elusive, hard-to-find thing. It's been revealed in the gospel. And in fact, it's even revealed in part at the end of Ecclesiastes, the very last few verses say this. The end of the matter, he says, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So here the writer has been kind of giving us this impression that, that maybe nothing matters, and then we get to the end of the book and we find that everything matters. Everything. Every deed that you do has meaning. Every secret that you're holding has meaning because it is taking place in a universe in which there is a God who will one day call all of us to account for the way we've lived our lives. In kind of an odd way, the final judgment day is what ends up giving life meaning because everything has a certain significance. It's like if a teacher said to you, um, I'm going to give you two assignments. One's going to account for 50% of your grade and the other is not going to be graded at all. Which one would you give your attention to? Of course, the one that counts for 50% of your grade, the one that's not graded, what would you say about it? It's meaningless. It doesn't matter. I don't have to pay any attention to it. But what Ecclesiastes is saying is that there is going to come a day 
when a great evaluation of all human beings takes place. And that's what makes life meaningful. So in the context of the gospel, let me just explain it to you very briefly. Here's just the basic gospel. Here's how the gospel makes sense of life. It says that there has been a God for all eternity, an eternal personal God who created all things, and He created you. You are a creature of God. You belong to Him and are accountable to Him because He created you. And He existed long before you. That means He is at the center of the universe. That means you exist for Him. He doesn't exist for you. Very important distinction to keep in mind when you think about the meaning of life. God does not exist to meet your needs. You exist to honor and obey Him. But we know that something went wrong. We look at the world. We know something's not right with the world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And the reason why is because we're not the way we're supposed to be. A rebellion took place. Human beings, men, women, and children, rebelled against God, disobeyed Him, sinned in the commission of sins as well as in the omission of things that they should have done. And that created a separation between people and God and placed us under God's condemnation and punishment. But God was merciful, and in His kindness and love, He decided that He would enter into this world in the person of His Son, that He would come in the person of Jesus Christ, and He would live in our place, and He would die in our place, and He would shed blood for our sins, and He would be resurrected from the dead to pay the penalty that you and I deserve so that we can look ahead to judgment without fear, but with confidence that we are saved and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This Jesus is the one who is called the way and the truth and the life. He is the truth, the truth, the one who makes sense of life is not just a proposition, but a person who has come from beyond the sun, under the sun, into this world to pursue you and me, to live the perfect life we should have and to die a death that we should have. And then... The final part of the gospel is that Jesus will return, and He will restore all things. And that's when the final verses of Ecclesiastes will take place, when Jesus comes again, and this great judgment will take place. And the Bible makes it very clear that if you trust in Christ, that if you turn from your sins and receive Him as Savior, you can have the assurance that there's no condemnation for you, that you've crossed over from life, life over from death into life and that you have His everlasting favor and never have to fear His eternal punishment. That's, that, that's the gospel. And that's what gives meaning to life. That's what makes life meaningful. Friends, here's why you exist. To know that God, to serve that God, to love that God, to cherish that God, to obey that God, to adore that God, to worship that God, and to glorify that God. That's why you're here. And the fact that all of you are alive is proof that God still has a lot of meaning left in your life. He's got work left for you to do. He has opportunity for you to know Him, to walk with Him, and to love Him. The God who created the Son and gave His Son so that you can know Him. The chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's what we're here to do as God's people, and that's what we'll learn more about.
as we continue through this sermon series. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, um, we thank you that you've not left us in hopelessness. We thank you, Father, that you have imbued our existence with meaning. And we praise you for that, God, and ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us an increasing sense of why we exist and what you have called us to do in service to you. Please help us, bless the rest of these messages, and build us up in service to you. In Jesus' name we pray.